This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick-and-mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show comedian, writer, and actor, Jamie Lissau. So we discuss a host of topics from elements of Jamie's childhood that contributed to his road to comedy, his journey into stand-up, how a chance meeting with Rob Schneider brought him into the world of television, divorce, 
living in Alaska, contrast therapy with ice baths and sauna, his powerful story about Kratom, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jamie Lissau. Enjoy. Well, Jamie, I want to start by saying two things. Firstly, thank you so much to Ben Duff for connecting us. And secondly, to welcome you on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yes, thank you, Ben Duff. And happy to be here, man. Happy to be here. So how do you and Ben know each other? Me and Ben know each other because I don't know what your policy is on when you get messages on Instagram, like direct messages from usually strangers, but I mostly don't read them. But every once in a while, I'm on an airplane. I kind of scroll through, and I see this. I see this dude, Ben, Ben Duff, and he says um, he mentions Jocko Willink, and then he mentions that like he's seen me on the Gutfeld show, and it, it, but I, I, he has. I have my Jocko Willink. He's one of my here. Like he's my in my top five of people. If if you said I could have dinner with somebody, Jocko would be in there. So this got my attention, and. Um, I didn't know if I was being catfished by Ben or if this was legitimate. And or it by ended Jocko. up, <laughs> yeah, or by Jocko. And uh, but we ended up uh, kind of corresponding, and then I eventually did a little, you know, just sort of like in, endorsing Jocko. You know, Jocko, Jocko has great, just all his supplements are. He he comes from the right place with everything that he does, in my opinion. And so we collaborated on a little endorsement thing. I did I did like this beginning of the year you know, you have good habits for 30 days. And so I did some posts for, for those guys. And that's, that's kind of how I met uh, Ben. Beautiful. Yeah. He'll actually be coming on the show because uh, he's very passionate, obviously about um, autism, his son being autistic. So yeah. we're going to do a pod- podcast on that because a lot of, a lot of us don't really get any training on the different types of potential patients that we might get. And that's a very, very, um, right, you know, specific skill set to understand the world of an autistic child or someone with Down syndrome. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him then. Oh yeah, very cool. So we talked right before we hit record. It looks like you are in some sort of African cannibal tiki area. So what is going on behind you right now? See, what happens, James, is whenever I get hired to do comedy, like I'm in Edmonton, Canada, right now, I tell them certain things I need in my hotel room, you know, and so I. These are the things I demand. I'm just kidding. It's just, so this is, I don't know what's happening. I'm in, I'm at this giant, the biggest mall in America in Edmonton. And I'm at this hotel. It's this hotel that's inside of the mall. So you can just walk to the comedy club and all the rooms are themed, which so you can see like a tiki thing behind me. And then uh, that thing, and check this out mm-hmm. and check this out. This isn't a normal, it's a, uh, it's a hot tub whirlpool surrounded by like a rock quarry. Yeah, it looks like a kind of pseudo spa slash sacrifice area. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I feel like I might stay out of there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, how deep cleaned the rock quarry gets in between guests. <laughs> so I may, I may stay away from that uh, for this one. That might not be lava. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, don't, well, don't bring a black light in here. No, no, that'd be terrifying. Terrifying. So, well, I would love to start at the very beginning. We know where you are now. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in upstate New York and I'll tell you how my parents met because I feel like that's the most interesting of the stories. My dad was actually a, studying to be a priest and my mom was in the nunnery and they met and they started like exchanging letters and stuff. And then my dad decided not to be a priest and my mom decided not to be a nun and they got married. That is an epic story. Yeah. Right. And but not a very religious upbringing though, oddly enough, they didn't really make us, we went to church, but it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't anything too uh, too crazy, and um, just I, you know, pretty much a um, a pretty good, a pretty pretty nice. Like, like when I watched the, uh, you know, like Leave It to Beaver, I felt like I was in that camp of having like a pretty a pretty normal upbringing, you know. And then um, I don't know. And then uh, my it's funny. I always wanted to do stand up comedy. My, like even when I was too young to even know it was a job, like I would see guys on TV and I just, I just was drawn to it, but just never knew it was a real job. And so I remember I, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I was, um, I ended up after I, I went to college in New York, studied like math and psychology because I was good at those things. Not because I had any idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had no plan of, I didn't know what people that studied that would go do after that. I just was taking it like step by step. I, I just didn't, I didn't look into the future that much. And then I had a drinking buddy who uh, he was a year older than me. And one day I went over to, to drink with him and he was like, I can't drink right now. I'm, I'm studying for the LSAT, the law school admissions test. And so I was like, well, I'll help you study. The LSAT's like really fun. It's like a lot of like mind games and all, you know, it's like a cool test. And so I helped him study. And then when the test came around, I remember one day thinking like, why don't I take the test? Like I just, I literally studied as much as he did. I would come over and help him study. And so I ended up taking the, the, the law school exam and I got like, a, I got the same score as him. And so I was like, I don't know, maybe I should go to law school. I just, I didn't know what to do. So I went to law school at, uh, at the university of Buffalo for like, I was like a week into it. I had moved in, moved all my stuff but I had just started to do some comedy shows like 20 bucks here in a free hotel room. 20, and it was, it was so fun and it was amazing. And I remember thinking if I go to law school, I'm going to owe all this money. There's it's so much. So when I graduate, I'm not going to be able to try stand up because like I'll have to pay this back. I will have to be a lawyer. And I remember I, after the one week in school, I drove home to Rochester, New York. And I remember my dad was like laying on the couch and I was, and I just like, I just let, you know, I just go, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I, I'm, you know, I'm in law school, but I kind of want to do comedy. And my dad, I remember him going, I remember him just saying, yeah, I, you shouldn't go to law school yet. Like that's a, it's a, it's a bad idea. You should try to do comedy like a hundred percent. And he drove me to school and got all my stuff and drove back and just like beyond belief supported like this crazy idea I had. And then sadly, but, but he, he ended up passing away, like not, not much later, like maybe like, like, like later that, that year. And, um, but I, I feel like I owe that to him of really, really getting behind me on what seemed like kind of a crazy decision. 
that I look back and I think like, wow, you know, my life would be, would be totally different. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy how it all turned out, man. I got a, Things things must be going good. I don't know if you saw the tiki tub with the rocks. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the pinnacle. You know? That's a good. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go all the way back for a second. Your grandparents, what were the environments that your parents were both raised in that sent them towards the, the cloth initially? So this might, this is getting a little, it's funny. Like um, with my mom, I don't know if I have a good answer i know she grew up in like a super religious household so maybe that was something that you know like that her that her parents would have been proud of her for for doing but i know in my dad's situation i actually found out not that long ago that that he might have been homosexual and back then it it it, we didn't talk about a lot of stuff when we were kids, right? I have more information about this. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. I just don't have the, back then they wouldn't say anything. And so I heard his brother had told me that it was just so not accepted that he felt like that might be a way to just like get away. And, you know, and back then maybe he thought it would straighten him out or whatever crazy things people thought back then. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I don't have a great answer to that, but those are my guesses. That's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, sadly, that that whole generation probably felt they they couldn't speak out and couldn't be who they were. But if if he had stayed on that path, then you never would have been born. So obviously, there right, was right. there's a reason for it. Yeah, some people wish he had stayed on that path. <laughs> so you told you told me that they both ended up, you know, walking away from actually being part of a religious organization specifically what did they end up doing profession wise after that oh so my mom was pretty much a stay-at-home mom who uh was a substitute teacher now and then but basically stayed home and raised us and my dad ended up being a guidance counselor which do they have that in, in all schools is that a common i believe so yeah yeah so he was basically a counselor to the kids uh in in uh, uh high school in upstate New York. And I think he found a good place in doing that. There's not a week that goes by where I don't get a message from one of his students that says like, are you related to him? Like, is that your dad? Like he did this for me. He helped me with this. And yeah, but uh, yeah, I remember he, um, and then I think, I think he also had a little bit of a, I think he had a little bit of a private therapy practice going for a while. But it was it was it was always in that vein though of like he was always very easy to talk to. He was he was a really good listener. And what did you lose him to health wise? It was cancer, but because our parents didn't tell us anything, I don't even know what kind specifically. I remember him getting really sick. He had um, like Hodgkin's disease, and and then but he kind of like rebounded from that, and we got like a bunch more years with him, and then. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly what type it was. I think it was like a, a blood or bone, one of the bad ones. But I remember, I remember being, I don't know how old I was. I'm terrible with dates, but I remember like sitting in my dining room. You know, you have these moments from childhood, and they're so I could I could tell you every second of what happened. Like they're so vivid. And I remember him, he had a call with his doctor. And I remember like they were supposed to talk about like what the next treatment was. And I remember him like writing down like three months to live. And like underlining it. And I was like, what is happening? And then, and to this day, I look back and I go, Should, shouldn't that have been an in-person meeting? I don't know if you should be calling people with the three month, you know, you don't want to send a text. But I, m- I remember that being, a, and then 
but I remember when he hung up the phone, like, of course, that's like a tragic thing. And, but there are, there are also like some parts of that where I look at and think, but at least you get to know like that someone that you're going to lose someone. And so we, I remember we went out, we didn't have any money when I was growing up, we'd never gone on vacation. I remember we went on a vacation and we got to say things to each other that you might not get to say if somebody walked in the road and got hit by a bus or something, you know? And so, yeah, but it was, uh, I think that was when I was like a senior in college or something. I just interviewed a Marine and she was stationed in Camp Lejeune in the eighties, which is the, the notorious, um, contaminated water that now a lot of people are getting sick almost the same as the agent orange from vietnam and yeah. she said that very thing she was like of course you know i'm heartbroken that this is happening and that i'm you know going to be gone by the time i get to the summer but she said exactly that but at least i get to actually say goodbye to people and actually you know close some chapters rather than i get nailed by a bus and never had the time right yeah i totally get that now, you talked about upstate New York. I worked in summer camps up in the Adirondacks for six years in the kind of exchange program that they do with college students. Um, tell me about, you know, what was the environment that you grew up in and what, what kind of sports and athletics were you doing back then? Oh, man, I was a big, uh, I was really big into wrestling. I was a wrestler. And um, and then I got really into, I, I had, I was pretty, I didn't have the best before high school I didn't have the best experience at school. It was a lot of bullying stuff. And just, I remember going to school sometimes and just being almost like terrified as to what was going to happen. And so as I got older, I was really drawn to fighting, you know, like wrestling. And I remember I got really into lifting weights. I, I did like, as a teenager, I did like some competitive bodybuilding um, competitions and stuff, which by the way is a total curse because you've seen yourself looking in this pristine shape. And so you are no longer accepting of any way that you look because you've seen how you can look. It's almost, I'm still friends with some guys that I did it with. And it's so funny how, how, how critical you are of yourself knowing like that you could look like that. Like, I'm like, Oh, if I just been like a piece of shit my whole life, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry that much about it. But, but in some sense it is what gets you, like when I, when I follow the Jocko stuff, it is maybe what got me up this morning at, you know, five 30 in the morning to go to the gym with some, with some of that stuff. So it's interesting when I was younger, um, I, I, w I wasn't bullied at school. It wasn't terrible. I didn't enjoy school very much high school, but, um, I wasn't picked on or anything, but it was just, I was skinny. I had like a blonde Afro fucked up teeth, dry skin, just, I mean, you know, very, very self-conscious, um, very small. And so what I found was not deliberately, but there was this wit that would be developed. And ultimately, I could make more fun of myself than anyone else could, which I think disarmed a lot of people. We were like, oh, shit, if he can say that about him, what can yeah. he say about me? And I, like I said, I had a lot of friends. It wasn't a bad bullying experience, but I saw that comedy and that, almost that self-deprecation -dep element being a defense mechanism and it's a lot of people i know that have got into comedy that seems to be the backstory so did you start using quote unquote comedy as some sort of your know, defense or healing or something to lean into when you were going through those experiences yeah that's a great point man i do feel like it's a kind of a keto where you like redirect the energy with jokes you know and those guys start to like you i just talked to my friend yesterday about after my dad passed away and we had like some other kind of pretty 
pretty tragic things happen in my family. And um, it's funny. He has like this amazing, like mother and father, you know, like just like super supportive and everyone's healthy and everyone. And we we're talking the other day and he was saying in some ways, he's like, I wonder if that's what made you like, not just try to be funny, but leave. Because when you do stand up comedy, you have to leave. You have to like leave your home, leave your family, go on the road and do these things. And he was saying how sometimes, you know, like he's so happy that he has this like supportive family, but he, he finds it hard to like take those chances because he's so close with everyone. And so I thought that was really interesting because, you know, sometimes you could, you, you can sometimes think of yourself as a victim and go, Oh, I wish I had had my dad longer. I wish I, but then you don't know, like maybe that's what made me, you know, get in the car and drive off. And maybe I did seek some, at first, like seek some approval from strangers, like those laughs or whatever, but however it, it gets us there, you know, but yeah, I th- yeah. The, the humor thing, man, that's a, it's funny. I, I haven't ever didn't have never connected those two things, but yeah, that's uh, I think that's a real thing that you develop, like what you need to survive. Absolutely. Well, and even, you know, the, the bodybuilding element, you know, and I think the, the, the fighting element too, those are also armors, which can be honed in a very, very positive way. Or yeah. as we see with some people in the bodybuilding world, it can be body dysmorphia. And there's a complete, you know, infatuation with how they look and being as big as possible. And now they're deviating from what's actually healthy. So rather than just strength and conditioning, now you're literally, you know, destroying your body to try and have this outwardly projecting large physique. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Bodybuilding is the perfect example of like taking a good thing too far. Like something that's so healthy, but once you get yet yeah, some of those levels, you're just seeing how good you can look in a moment, maybe for one day, like you're doing your pre-contest diet that, you know, you're dehydrating yourself, getting down to a certain weight to look, you know, healthy, right? That is interesting. So you told me about this amazing kind of career journey from, you know, studying math and um, you said philosophy, psychology, uh, psychology, psychology. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then you very went sim- very similar in that you can't make any money doing that. <laughs> so then you, you kind of almost go to law school. Was it within that week where you get to dip out without having to incur any charges as well? Wait, say again? Wait, I'm sorry. Oh, yes, yes, exactly. The, the dropout period. That's so funny. I I was wondering, I was just wondering if they still did that. But I remember I got a piece of paper that said, when you graduate from law school, you're going to owe this much money. And it was a lot. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it said, unless you leave right, like in the next couple of days. And I remember being like, oh my God, like, yeah, there was a piece of paper that said it would cost nothing to leave. And I was, I was curious if they still do that or not, but yeah, yeah. I got out of there without, uh, without too much financial damage, just a little bit from the apartment, but that was it. Beautiful. Well, then, so what did you go into next? You come back home after that. I come back home after that and I proceed to do whatever I can to do stand-up comedy, whatever job I need. So I am working, I'm working at Arby's, the fast food restaurant. I'm working as a temp for a temp agency, waiting tables, just anything I could do like to, to go on the weekends and, perform and at that time i'm not even i'm not even performing at comedy clubs i'm performing like it like i'm like i remember i've got paid at first i remember getting paid half price bowling like that was your paycheck for the night was just you get to bowl for half price you get a few drinks and um yeah so i just cobbled together like all these strange jobs until you know one day i looked at my calendar and it was 
oh, there's like several weeks in a row. I can't temp next week. I got to work. And then suddenly, you know, it was a year where all I had done was comedy. And I was like, oh, I think I'm a full-time comedian. Like I'm not making a lot of money or anything, but I'm able to support myself. Now, with your actual comedy, who were some of your influences, you know, because everyone has a somewhat style and, you know, type of comedy. Yeah. Who are you kind of pulling from as far as your organic influence to the unique comedy that you ended up creating? So I was a big, um, I, I had all the Bill Cosby uh, cassettes. That was one of my early uh, exposures was to Bill Cosby. I was a huge fan of his comedy, not a, not a huge fan of the other, some of the other stuff. Uh, that he does in his regular life, but a huge Rodney Dangerfield fan. He still is probably like m my favorite, if not one of my favorites. And I like, he used to have the, um, the young comedian special back in the day on HBO, where he would bring in new comedians. And uh, that was, that was the best man watching Rodney on there. And uh, I love George Carlin. I don't think I'm similar in any way to George Carlin, but I have like a deep appreciation for, um, for his comedy. I've never been a guy that like, I love Chappelle met Chappelle a few times, seen a bunch of his shows, but I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm like Chappelle or Carlin in that. I don't think I'm really saying, saying, I'm just trying to make people laugh. Those guys are making like these beautiful points. I don't think I have a lot of points to make. I don't think I have a lot of, you know, I'm not looking to sway anyone politically. I feel like I'm more of like uh Norm Macdonald also was one of my all-time favorites, hands down. Just, just basically, if someone gets a babysitter and brings their wife or husband to the show, just rule number one is to make them laugh and have a good time. You know, I don't know if I'm smart enough to do the other stuff. Beautiful, yeah. I mean, Carlin and some of those guys. I, I love, I love it when you can combine comedy with middle of the road messages but like you said the danger is swinging one way or the other i, I there's an english guy that i kind of liked his stuff and then during covid he was like all the way on the one side and it, it, all his routines were about that and it's like okay you just lost everyone else because you leaned right. into the extreme and you've, you've you know most of us are here in the middle you can kind of put right. your toes over here put your toes over there kind of laugh a little bit at the extremes themselves but yeah it was a, it was a shame a lot of people really for example in that couple of years i think got lost in some of the politics and the the uh the fear-mongering rather than you know not not that kind of oh you're a comedian shut up and make me laugh but more don't get don't think that all the funnies are over here and all those people right. over there are your enemy. And because that's not, to me, that's right. not what it is. Most people were in the middle getting kind of shitty information from both sides. I couldn't agree more. And I feel like, especially when you have an audience, like now I have more, and more of an audience like coming to see me that knows me already. And you have two things are going to happen. You're either preaching to the choir, which, well, why are we doing that? Or is the comedian going to be the reason you completely do a 180 in your mind on this political issue. I wonder if anyone's ever changed their mind based on someone's bit. And yeah, I also think like there's the extremes of politics. Some of those people that are on the left and on the right are married to each other and they both come to the show and some of them are in groups of friends. And so there's this dynamic where are, like, I don't want to ever have an act where you can't bring somebody because you're afraid that person's not, there's nothing for them all night long. Absolutely. It's all on one side. Well, Funny we, first, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And what you hit on as well is something I've talked about a lot, that 
the the debate is hailed as this amazing thing where these minds meet and I disagree completely. When two people debate, it's an argument and mm-hmm. I've never met anyone that went into a debate and came out going, huh, I used to think right. this way, but now I think something completely different because that guy just changed my mind. No, never absolutely once. not. So never it's once. crazy whether you're on a, on, a, on a stage with a microphone as a comedian or whether you're actually debating on a political stage, you're not winning a debate. Now, you might maybe impart some information to make people think, but no one, like you said, no one is going to walk out thinking completely different. Completely. And I, I oftentimes notice I have a little trouble getting like even in the mornings, I have to do like a specific morning routine to get my mind in the right place to just like have a good day. It's just like a thing that it's just, I don't know why it's harder. Maybe it's harder for some people than me, but I know for a fact that it's harder for me than some other people like my friends. And I started doing a thing where I, if I would talk to someone on the phone that say would want to argue, I started realizing like when I hung up the phone, how do I, like, how do I feel? Did, did, did they add energy to my day or take it away? Like, what's the feeling? You know, some people you talk to them and you go, that's why I love doing podcasts. I, every time I've ever done, a, I would say all podcasts I've ever done. When I'm done, I'm like, yeah, like, it's always like, I feel good. Like I, we, we talked about stuff. It makes, it makes me feel good. This is what I like to do. But some people I hang up and I'm like, ah, my stomach kind of hurts. Cause I think I said, I think I was mean. Cause I was trying to win this point. So I just stopped talking. I just deleted all those conversations for my life as much as possible. And just in like stand up for, for a person like me that, that gets emotionally thrown one way or the other, I'm trying to, I don't want to have any of those. I don't want someone to, I did a joke about like Joe Biden that I thought was like a pretty funny, I don't even remember what it was, but it was a joke that I would have told about anyone that was kind of old. I don't even know what it was. It, it could have been, I think I, it was something like, I don't know. He was, you know, sometimes he is embarrassing. Like he was, you know, the other day he was in Air Force One and the blinker was on the whole time. It was like a silly joke or something, right? And some lady got really mad and walked out. And it like really, that's also upsetting to me. And I go, I'm not going to, you know, like I, it, to me, I go about, I feel like I go through so much of my day trying to figure out, you can predict what makes you feel uneasy or shitty in most cases. And in so many times I would go into those I go, oh, this guy's calling. I haven't talked to him in a while. And now I don't pick up the phone anymore because I, I know that when I hang up, I'm going to feel angst and stressed and bad. And so I try to really lean towards, you know, when I see someone calling, I go, oh, I know this, this you know, I'm going to hang up and feel energized. We're going to make each other laugh and talk about projects. Like those are the calls, you know, those are the calls I answer. I post quite a lot of stuff on Instagram, just normally resharing a lot of things. Um, and then I'll, you know, do some videos and stuff when it's something that's, uh, something I really want to talk about but a lot of times I'll run it by my wife like this is what I'm thinking what do you think and she'll be like ah that actually might be received this way and I'm like okay beautiful thank you I'm not going to do that and that's the thing is that sometimes you can say something or you can post something and a German perfect example I just spoke to um, Greg Glassman's uh, right hand woman at the moment um, the head of CrossFit and he made one tweet and it was taken a certain way and a lot of people want to burn the church down. And when I hear the backstory, actually, it wasn't meant that way at all. It was actually uh, pointing to something in a, in a positive way, but um, that was totally lost in the, the kind of knee jerk. But again, it's having that filter and having that person just to run it by and be like, okay, this is what I, I'm trying yeah. to say. I just want to make an old person joke. Oh, I, how, how do you, why don't you just change it from Joe Biden to so-and-so? That way you're not going to, you know, hyper trigger right. people. So it is interesting because you you don't want to, you know, mute everything and just 
dull your comedy, but at the same time, it's amazing how just a little editing sometimes can can take something that you know might have quote unquote triggered a lot of people to just taking that edge off and still delivering the same message. Absolutely, and I I know for a fact that there are some guys who want to trigger the people. They want to, do, and I just don't. I just am not interested in that. Yeah, but you make a, a good point that a lot of times, if you look at like where the laugh is coming from, is it is it really about this person or is it about this juxtaposition or this scenario? Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, so I'm not obviously well versed in in the world of comedy as far as just um being. I, I love comedy. A lot of the, the British comedians I love, especially from when I was more in my like teens and twenties. Um, but what is the process that you apply to try and get your material? I know some people, you know, walk around with a, a notebook the whole time or, you know, what, are there any kind of common denominators about your process that's worked well for you? I say you definitely have to have, you have to have a notebook at all times or you will, you will not remember these things that you think you'll remember, like little funny things to happen during the day. So I always have a little notebook with me. What's really changed the game for me, if when I would see... Louis C.K., another one of my favorites, and all these guys, they would come out with like a brand new hour of material every year or every two years. I was fascinated by that because I was always a guy who it was hard for me to come up with a new hour. It was it was really hard. I'm not one of these guys with like 10 hours of material like George Cohen, whoever. But what really changed the game for me was going on this when I go on Gutfeld, which is this late night show I do, they send us. And in the afternoon, like we're going to talk about these five topics. And so you sit down and you write jokes about those five topics. And then this, this blows my mind too. So like I did the tonight show, like in 2001, that was my first TV thing with like Jay Leno, that set that I did, I worked on for 10 years. Cause I worked on it at all these clubs all over the country, honing the perfect set. And then when those guys hired me to do the tonight show, they made me do it in all different crowds. There was this process where they would go like, don't say that word, say this word. It was a, a, a really intricate, you know, process to come up with that five minutes on Gutfeld. We write these jokes and then we just go do them for the first time ever on TV in front of 2 million people on Monday. We had over 2 million people. And that has changed the game for me because I'm realizing that deadlines for me are where it's at. Like if I'm just guy on the road doing comedy, yeah, I'll write some jokes and I'll do some new jokes here and there. Etc. But man, having the deadline of you have to go on TV and this has to be funny. And each night I'm doing probably five to seven minutes of material. I'm doing it every week. And so I'm finding that that has now become my new, my new notebook is like, I know every week I got to like sit down and like really hammer out these jokes. And so my process has changed a ton. Like just, just in the last year, just being able to, to try the jokes out in front of like, giant audiences and people online they'll tell you which ones are good and which ones aren't they are not afraid to direct message me about which ones they liked and didn't so that helps too well speaking of that so i mean this i've wanted to ask people this for a long time and now i finally have someone who's a comedian and who has a lot of friends that have been on snl back in the heyday i don't know if i'm just forgetting what it used to be like but it seems to be now that the snl for example and i used to watch mad tv a lot when when it was on but snl now the guests and even the comedians seem to be just reading a prompter the whole time 
So you don't seem to have that comedic timing and spontaneity that you would from a rehearsed sketch that I, I seem to remember is what they used to do. There would be probably a lot more preparation before the shooting. Is that my mis- you know, misconception or has that time crunch become so f- tight now that maybe it's even threatening the very comedy that is the foundation of that show? Yeah, so I will say my answer is I'm guessing because I don't really know the answer, but you're I know exactly what you, what you mean. I also think that there's more like laughing during the sketches. Like people will break and laugh and the audience laughs. Back in the Rob Schneider, Adam Sandler, Norm, all, those guys didn't break. I, I almost wonder, were they were they a little more committed? Like, did they, did they, maybe the cue card, they did probably did have cue cards, but maybe they really knew I don't know. I wonder if they took it a little more seriously. I wonder, because I think of all those. Yeah, think about like, I'm thinking of Schneider catch, uh, Schneider sketches, but like copy guy, you know, where he'd be like, you know, Steve Arino, Steve-O. There, there were no cue cards. I mean, he was like in that character. That's a good point. I'm a little out of the loop. I don't watch SNL that much anymore, but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it, it does take, uh, definitely takes away, right? When it's, because it's taking you out of the sketch and realizing that person's just reading off of a, a card or a prompter, which makes me think, I start thinking, oh, did someone else write this? Do they know the jet? Like it really takes you out of the moment. Yeah, and it does because I love, I love stand-up. That's one of my favorite things. When I was in university in London, I would go to the comedy store like almost every weekend just on my own, like Billy No Mates, and just laugh my ass off for hours and hours and hours, and I absolutely adored it. So when you've been exposed to that and, you know, again, like we said, some of the, the great, great cast they had in SNL, Mad TV, then, you know, whether it's a poor stand-up comedian or, or like you said – chopping so much that these people maybe don't get the time to rehearse the the lines and get into the character and now they're corpsing all over the place then yeah you know the, a, a, a blooper reel can be hilarious but if it's constantly and you're losing the actual sketch then you know where is that line yeah what's funny about being a comedian and working nights is that i missed i don't think i watched one episode that's why i haven't seen snl in so long i work every saturday night it's like my Wednesday afternoon for a regular working person. I never saw Seinfeld. Like I've certainly seen clips. I missed Friends because Friends was during. I was touring back back when I started. We did like now it's more comedy clubs are like Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. We used to do shows every night and maybe have a Monday off. And so I feel like I'm I'm a I missed a lot of that uh, prime time TV stuff just because my working hours are so different. So with that, you talked about your calendar starting to fill. One of the things that you hear from from comedians, from musicians, is the the toll it takes from being on the road, especially as you pointed out before, when people have families at home. So what were those, you know, it's great because you're busy, you're doing the thing that you love to do. I'm sure financially that was great, but was there a kind of um, paradox with constantly being in a hotel room, constantly being you know on the road? Oh, yeah, and it's still absolutely a struggle because there's this lie i'm not going to say people tell themselves but that i definitely told myself which is i think you think when i get to this level i will take more time off and be with my family more i constantly have this vision of this perfect life where like oh if i make twice as much per show i'll do half as many shows right and you all just be home the rest of the time but that's not what happens james i don't know if you, what happens is you you think 
wow, now that I'm making this much more per show, I should hit it really hard. What if it goes away? What if, and, and then you start thinking, yeah, well, I have three kids I want to save for their college. What if the, the show I'm on goes off the air? What if they just don't want me on there anymore? And so you start, it's really weird. And I've had to, for me, I really get like wrapped up in stuff where it's been really helpful for me to, for me to have, I have this manager and I would say the most important thing that he does for me is he completely holds me accountable to say on Monday morning, I get back to Alaska where I live and I'm drinking a coffee and I'm like, wow, I love being with my kids. I'm not going to do these big like strings of tours. I'm not going to tour for three weeks anymore. I'll call him and go, Hey man, I want to make sure I'm like home for this and home for this. And then, but say I'm on the road and someone calls and goes, Hey, they want you to do this high paying gig. And then you get to do the TV show. When I call him and say, Hey, sh- can I, should I do all this stuff? He goes, Hey man, like remember you, you, the guy from Monday, he wants to stay home with his kids more. So we got to make sure like we do that as well. Cause you're going to be miserable. He's a better predictor of what future me will feel like. And so he like, we make these rules and he really holds me accountable to those rules. And I'll tell you one of the best things about it's, it's such a bad, it's such a struggle. Like the balance, like, I, I have an older crowd because of the TV show I'm on. Like my age and older, I would say, are my fans lately. And it's been the best possible thing for my life because what I started doing was I started really like, I don't like being out really late at night and neither do my fans. And so I've been doing shows. It's been, it's been wild. Like, we, like I was in, uh, in Austin the other day and I did one show at – I think it was at 5 p.m. on a Sunday. I had pajamas on by like 9 p.m. And so we're trying to like, with, with this, with more people coming to see me, I'm really trying to like prioritize family. And instead of doing a weekend at a club, like for instance, next in, in next week, I'm doing six clubs in six nights. So instead of doing like, oh, Thursday through Sunday at this club, then another week, I'm trying to just go, let me go to each city one for one night. You probably sell out the show, right? It's just one show. And so now you feel great. You sell it out. If we sell it out, we add another one. As opposed to comedy for me has always been like, spend a week in Vegas, do 14 shows, spend a weekend over here. And so I feel like at this exact moment, I'm getting the, like, I'm finally getting the work home balance figured out. I feel like I'm finally really like turning down stuff I never imagined I would turn down to make sure that I'm at my son's eighth grade graduation, which I'm not even sure is a real thing. <laughs> I don't even remember kids graduating from eighth grade when I was younger, but to, to be home for, it's also that kind of thing is I'm joking, but it's also that kind of thing where I talked to my friend who doesn't have kids. And I was saying, yeah, it's t-. I go, I, I, man, I have like the highest paying gig I've ever had on the books and they changed my son's graduation and I'm, I'm going to cancel it. And he was going, how you can't do that, dude. He's like, who eighth grade graduation? Like, is that even a real thing? Whatever. But the more I thought about it, it's not this graduation, right? It's what, it's what it means to the kid. That's the promise. It does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's saying you'd be there and what it means for him to have you on stage. And it doesn't matter. Like the thing is almost irrelevant. Yeah. It's the promise and, and what it means to them. And when I, that phone call where I did cancel that show, it was one of those, I remember, cause I, I like to journal a lot. And I remember that day I was like, wow, that felt good. That was one of those. I hung up and was like, 
you know, when you know you did the right thing, I don't have many moments where I go, wow, I know I did the right thing in this, in this instance. That was one of those where I was like, okay, this is like the universe or whoever going like you're doing, you know, you know, when you just feel that, you know, it was the right decision. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of someone who was on the show. I forget who it was now, but it was someone who, again, when their gigs come along, they're very high paying gigs. And they said, you know, that is categorically when they've allocated time for the family, it doesn't matter what comes along, they are going to still turn it down. I'm sure, you know, as hopefully a way of negotiating a different date, whatever. But that is, they've already said, I'm going to be home this time, this time, this time. And then they said, you know, the work life balance is ultimately, you know, you have to put home first obviously there's a balance as far as you've got to put a roof over their heads and food in their stomach but where is that line and in the fire service ironically it's it's easy for us to take the overtime because like you said you know most a lot of firefighters are not well paid so when it comes up it's time and a half and it's 24 hours and you know it can make a, a difference but then we have mandatory overtime where you're forced to stay for a 24 and then you have some of these more uh, aggressive firefighters that then start teaching so then they're traveling around the country and i know firefighters have said the exact same thing that you have that you know that whether you're a touring comedian or you know musician in a band or a firefighter you can find your way to where your balance is completely off and you're living this fictional justification like oh but it's for my family well what do your family ultimately want they want their mother and mm. their father Oh man, I and I have done that. I've been that guy. I know that feeling. And you're right. It's going, I'm gonna do this gig so I can save money for my kids' college or whatever. Well, your kid would probably rather you borrow that money at a low interest rate and go to his soccer game. Absolutely. And we'll get a only be, yeah, and they're only gonna be that age. That that time goes by fast with kids thing. It doesn't matter how cliche it becomes or how many times people say it, it's it's unreal how fast it goes and how you only get the one, you know. You only get those those little moments with them at those ages that and like you said, the other thing is that gig I turned down, it are it got rebooked yesterday. And there was there was a part of me that thought, oh, we lost that one. And it just popped up on the calendar again. So oftentimes there's there's no loss at all. It's just this thing. And I also think it comes from I grew up like pretty poor. And then even doing stand-up, like your first, geez, my first 10 years of stand-up were like if like, like my auto reply for my email just said, I'll take it just whatever. <laughs> gets, take. And so you have this, this almost like this desperation where you like, I want them to headline me. I want these good. And so it takes a minute for you to put yourself in the mindset of, Oh, I can pick and choose a little now, but it's hard. Cause it's been there for so long in the back of your mind that this scare, this, you know, kind of like coming from a point of scarcity and like, I want to keep that and get that. With, when I think of the world of comedy, obviously there's sadly, you know, there's there's many mental health elements. And I think just like the uniform professions where we actually peel back the onion and realize how many of us had trauma early life. And that's what dread us, uh, dread us, it's probably a, a, a Freudian slip there, led us <laughs> into the, the uh, protector position, quote unquote. It seems like a lot of the outwardly funny people, you know, may have been, as we talked about earlier, addressing things that, that hurt them when they were younger so you look at robin williams you look at some of the you know the overdoses and the addiction and stuff that exists in in your profession as well as you progress i'm, I'm assuming probably it was more of a raw view earlier on was that was that actually a common denominator or is that a kind of misnomer in the public eye i feel it's pretty common like just within 
my friend group are looking around without looking at any, without looking at a study or anything. I mean, I, I've seen, we've seen so many guys that committed suicide or we lost to overdoses so many. And even personally, it's funny without even realizing it, I think I got so addicted to alcohol, but only looking back, you you don't like drink and go, I'm cover- pouring this on these feelings. You go like, oh, I want to go out with that girl. And you don't realize that you're searching for validation or just someone to like it. You don't realize why you're doing it. And if I look back at my, even my career trajectory, if you would call it that, um, it like when I did the, like I did a bunch of stuff like in 2001, it's 22 years ago. Tonight show, I did like four television shows. And then as I, as I map it out, I got so deep into the world of like feeling like it was, it was a party. Like we would go to these clubs and you would have a good show and that, that, but that was only 10% of your night. The show was, was, was cool, but then we're going to go out and we're going to meet these people and we're going to drink and we're probably going to wake up like tomorrow afternoon and then have a coffee and then do another show and then do this all over again. And yeah, as I look back, it's, it's hard though, almost diagnosing it. As you look back at the time, I just was like, this is really fun. I'm doing this. But once I stopped, it really, really becomes evident that, wow, there's a, there's a lot, you know, they say, and I'm not in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I, but I, I respect it and have a lot of friends in it, but they have some, dude, they have some of the greatest quotes of all time. Some of the greatest sayings of all time are from AA, but they have one that says like, the, like the best thing about quitting drinking is that you get to experience all your feelings. And the worst thing about quitting drinking is that you get to experience all your feelings. And it's, it's just wild. Like once you stop, like how much light is shed on like what, like why you did things that you did or what was the catalyst for certain things that at the time I would have told you, that's great. You know, you're crazy. I'm doing this because this is just fun. I had a, a, uh, Dutch model Doris Mouse on the show and um, she had a pretty powerful mental health story as well but she had said exactly that she's like the only time you can finally address what is going on you know and, and experience the good the bad and the ugly of it is to remove whatever filter that you've got alcohol or opiates or whatever that you're numbing yourself in and she said that mm-hmm. ended up becoming her sobriety tool was to have the courage to feel that pain Pain is there for a reason. Trauma is there for a reason. It's not supposed to be light and fluffy and Disney-esque. It's supposed to suck sometimes. That's what gives us light and dark. But I'd never kind of, just the way she stated it, which is similar to what you said, was just like, yeah, it's, you know, alcohol for us is subconsciously, it's, um, it's fear. It's, it's, it's almost like emotional cowardice in a way. And it's not deliberate. We're not saying, oh, I'm going to be a pussy and I'm just going to do this. But when you look at it, it's shying away from the very things that once we address them, we can grow and we can move forward. Mm-hmm. I totally, totally get that. Yeah. And I try to do this. My new favorite phrase I say to myself that I made up for myself is, and maybe I'll, t- I'll get into this in a minute, but I know when we had talked on the phone, whenever it was when we were going to schedule our interview, but I told you about the Kratom thing that happened to me. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about it now. But yeah, but my new, my new, uh, like if I had to could write something on a billboard, it would be earn your dopamine, right? Like alcohol is, is, is fun borrowed from tomorrow. It's free fun. Like you're not doing anything to earn 
this fun. And whenever you're doing that, it's never going to turn out good. Whenever you're, whenever, whatever you're doing is, is, you know, like when you go for a run, that's like, that's earned dopamine. But when you just grab a beer, it's just like, it's like fun juice that you're borrowing from tomorrow or maybe even 20 minutes from now. And yeah, but what happened was I, I'm trying to be totally honest because, but I really believe I'm trying to think how it first happened. Oh, a friend of mine was listening to this podcast by this like really reputable podcaster that I really like. His name is Ben Greenfield. He's great. I don't know if you know him. He's super popular and I, I he's, he has great like travel hacks. If he says, Oh, I do this on the road. I buy it instantly. Like I go, oh, I love this guy. So I, I, I own everything. He does a video of like how he travels. I own everything in the video. Love this guy. And my friend sent me, I had missed one episode of the podcast and he had sent me this thing and he said, Hey, Ben was talking about an alcohol alternative. That's like this little drink. And he goes, it made me think of you because you don't drink alcohol and literally sold as an alcohol alternative. And so he sends me the link and I go, I'll give this thing a try. And you get it. And it says, um, it, it it's, it's, I, I, I don't know if I should, maybe I won't say the name of it. I don't know. I guess we could always believe it. It's called like feel free. And it's a, it's like a, like a tonic and it, it's, you know, you go to the website, it's people doing yoga and shit. They're having the times of their lives. They're all peaceful. And it says an alcohol alternative. And it says something like it's a kava drink. It didn't say the word Kratom anywhere where I, where I had looked. And um, I don't even know if I knew what Kratom was, so it might not have mattered. And so I order this stuff, comes to my house in Alaska and it's these little bottles and I drink it. And immediately I'm like, holy shit, because it gives you like this, almost like a, this weird euphoria where, dude, I made some, I made some great deals. Like, like I would, if I had a big important phone call or I remember I had a meeting with a studio, which I don't do stuff like that very often. And I had a zoom meet, a meeting with the studio and I drank one of these things and just, you just crush it. Like you just, all the, all the nerves disappear and you're like, wow, I killed, you know, I killed that. I crushed that meeting. I was like the best version of myself. Um, and uh, I got so these things really, they just started really helping me. And I realized that uh, by the way, the end of that is they also give you an illusion that you're crushing it. So I saw some proof of times when I thought, oh, I crushed that meeting. Some of these were like, I'm on stage and I would watch a video of it after I stopped doing it. And I don't know, it's not necessarily true. It's almost like when you're drinking and you think you're funnier, mm -hmm. but that was more a perception. I don't know if I was crushing those meetings or if I just was letting myself off the hook a little bit on those things. But I started drinking these little bottles and they sell them in New York City. They sell them at gas stations. You know, I know they sell Kratom at smoke shops, but like I wasn't going to a smoke shop. I was buying them. I was touring in Florida and I would buy them at 7-Elevens right next to the counter. It'd be like five hour energy and then this feel free thing. And I would buy them and um, it was good. And then I would have like, I was having like one a day and then maybe a couple months passed. And I remember this one afternoon, I was like, I'd be cool to have another one of these, you know, be fun to have one of these. And I got hired to do this gig and it was, and it was like the most people I'd ever been in front of. It was like 7,000 people. And I was super excited. I was opening for somebody. Great gig. And I was in this car headed there. It was like a three hour car, car ride. And I remember I, I go, oh, I should have one of these little things. It'll help me like write my jokes. Or whatever. And I looked at my bag and I didn't have any. And I was like, oh, that's okay. 
And I go, maybe I'll grab one when I get to the, to the gig. And so the gig was in Connecticut and I, I'm kind of like calling places. Nobody, I find out in, in, I think it was Connecticut, wherever it was, this thing is a, if you're caught with Kratom, you can go to jail. It's so illegal. And I had just crossed over from a state where I bought it at a, and so that, I think that was my first red flag was that it was illegal in the state. And um, long story short, man, I don't know, maybe it's already too long to say it's a short story, but I ended up the next morning, I was like shaking with withdrawal symptoms and I couldn't believe it. And so what I did was I just went to New York and I bought another one because I wasn't in any condition. I was working. I had all these shows coming up. I go, geez, but I kept telling myself like, maybe it's okay though. Like, I mean, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure it was caused from that. I just did another one. I kept going for a while longer. And then I don't know, man, it, 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 they were $9 a bottle. And towards the end, I think I was having like three or four a day. It was getting ridiculous. It was like $40 a day for this dumb thing. And then at one point I remember I started having, which, which I started like really digging deep into Kratom, which is the active ingredient in these things. And I was, I was reading about how it's basically an opioid and you can have like opioid, you know, freaking withdraws if you're, if, if you take too much of it. And I was like, shit, I think I'm addicted to this shit. And I started getting withdrawal symptoms in between doses. So I didn't even quit. I was getting it as it would leave my body. And I was like, wow, I have, this is, this is not good. And I remember I ended up, um, I, I called, uh, a doc, Dr. Drew is like a, he goes on Gutfeld a lot and he's a friend of like Rob Schneider's and mine. And I remember thinking like, like, who could I call that like, won't tell anybody and I'll get an honest opinion. And like, and I was like, you know, he's just such a smart, approachable guy. And I think I sent him an email. I don't even think I had the balls to call him. And I sent him an email and I said, this might be crazy, but I think I might be addicted to this. And his response was, I remember being really shocked because his response was, yeah, you, you have to go to like a treatment facility. Like you have to go see someone. It's, it can be just as bad as being addicted to opioids. Like this is only going to get worse. And I remember being like, holy shit. It'd be like finding out you're, you're, you're addicted to cocaine without ever. I never, I was buying this at seven 11 and it got, it was so bad, man. And I tried, I said to, he's like, you should go. They'll give you this medication to help you. And I remember telling Drew, I said, can I, could I try to quit on my own? And he was like, you could, it's going to be almost impossible. And I was like, he doesn't know me. I can quit shit. I'm good. And man, I was in this, I was at the hard rock hotel in New York city and I canceled a bunch of gigs and I couldn't do it. Like I thought I was going to die. And I even have, um, I made videos the whole time just to remember how bad it was. If I ever want to try it again, I documented all these videos and I was watching them the other day. And there's a couple, I have no memory of making and one of them. It's, it's me saying, and I, I have no memory of this, James. I swear to God, I have no memory. It's me saying, I think I'm going to die. Like, I think dying is probably better than, I wasn't saying I was going to jump out the window or something, but I felt like if I closed my eyes, I was going to die. And I go through each of my kids and give them like a, Hey, I, I love you because you're this way. I, I did like a, I'm dead, a message. And I was just watching and I was like, Holy shit. It was so bad. And then I couldn't quit and I ended up flying to Alaska and going to like, uh, I did just like a, an outpatient thing at this substance abuse place. And they gave me Suboxone, which is what you take for heroin withdrawal. And it was, 
it was really hard. It was really hard to get off that shit. And, uh, but it's funny how I think that's one of the benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous because I don't go. This probably wouldn't have happened if I had been around a community. If I had walked into a meeting and been like, yeah, I started drinking this bottle. I feel great. It's changing. They would have been like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what's in this bottle, dude? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, now I take two a day. You know, I probably take three tomorrow. They, they would have probably stopped me. I think that's one of the advantages of like being in that community and being forced to, you know, like my life is it's basically in secret. I'm alone. I'm alone all the time. So there was nobody keeping tabs on it. But man, but that's that's uh, it's uh, it's almost like there's no such thing as a, a free lunch. Like it, it it cost me and it cost me maybe even still today. Like I just can feel like I think it. I don't know medically how it would be explained. Maybe it would be like a, like your uh, your dopamine or your serotonin getting your baseline dopamine getting so low that you have to build it back up. But that was I haven't taken it in months, and I still feel like I take these ice baths every day. And if I don't take them, I don't feel right. I do like all this stuff to just sort of get to get to even. Still, like every day after three months, I still do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna fill that with ice later. So I had a guy on the show, Chris Bell, and um, he was behind, uh, well, I forget the name of the documentary now, but they ended up, um, it was him, Mark Bell, and then they had an older brother who ended up dying of an overdose. But they did a documentary on, I think it was steroids, one on painkillers, and then, but one of his latest things, and he called me, he's like, I found this amazing substance, it's called Kratom. And then down the road, we did a podcast on it, and he was talking about the benefits. But then one of my wife's best friends, who sadly we just lost to surgery post-cancer a few months ago now, she was in the psychology world, and she's or the counseling world, and she's like, James, that Kratom stuff is horrendous. This is what we're seeing, and it's exactly what you had told me. So thank you. I mean, it's funny that it took a, someone from the stand-up comedy um, in a world to come on and talk about this, but it's important that people hear that. I mean, it seems to work maybe with some people that maybe you're trying to, as you said, transition off something else. But if the withdrawals are horrendous and if there's that gradual increase, that kind of resistance like you saw with oxycodone and so many other ones, oxycontin, um, then that's a huge red flag. And if it really is this dangerous, then it needs to be out of all those shops and, and you know, regulate it or just remove completely if it's truly, you know, that dangerous. Yeah. And as one disclaimer, because whenever I talk about Kratom and how terrible that experience was for me, I get people saying it really works for me. Like I, I need it to be legal. Like it takes this pain away. And dude, I can't drink alcohol either. So like, I'm also a person that is not good at regulating substances. So is it possible that there's a way to do it and not get to where I'm at? Oh, sure. I, I don't know. But, but I do think at the very, very least, shouldn't there be a warning on the damn, but like, even if it's still for sale everywhere, I can't believe there's not, there's not at least a cigarette style warning, warning of, cause there's no, I mean, there's absolutely nothing and it's almost hard to find. Like you have to, it's funny since I started, I've been talking about this a lot lately. And since I started doing it, the, the people I bought it from their website is, is much more careful. It says like only do this much a day, anything else. It's super dangerous. None of that, none of that was there. A, a year ago when I, not that I would have read it, not that I would have listened to it anyway, but I do think I just worry about like my son's 14 
And I don't think he has the same anxiety issues that I have. But if I had found this shit when I was 15 or 16, I can't even imagine. I would have thought it was the Holy Grail. It would have been a cure-all and I would have been so addicted. If it was at 7-Eleven and I drank one of those, you're telling me I can go talk to girls and it solves all these problems. And so I would just, I would like to see at the very least, uh, I I don't know, a, a, a very stern warning super obvious on the front. And I also think if something has Kratom as an ingredient, it should have to be pronounced and it's, it's on the feel free. It's just little tiny on the back. It's not on, they have like box displays on the display. It says a Kratom drink, or I'm sorry, it says a Kava drink. I think it should have to say Kratom. You should, you should at least know what you're getting into. So you could be mindful of it. Not that I would have been, I'm just saying. Well, Kava is so different as well. I had Kava. I went, around the world with my girlfriend at the time and we ended up in Fiji for a few weeks and it was right during a coup, a Fijian coup so all the tourists had been scared away there was just a handful of us in this backpackers place but it was amazing because if you actually look at the coup, they enter the government building, they all drink kava together, they come to an agreement and then they walk out, not a shot is fired, so I did my research realized that this was, you know, most likely going to be a very peaceful thing but mm-hmm. so when we were there, we got to do this dive. I think I did my open water dive. And for example, we did this uh, thing called Morgan's Wall, which is this huge drop off in the ocean just off the uh, coral coast there. And Morgan was in the boat. So that tells you kind of how organic yeah. this thing. So no he, he was the one that, you know, I mean, obviously he didn't discover That's it, amazing. but the most recent of the generations probably. But we would then go to the local Fijian village because this American Mike had rather than, you know, try and keep it all like some exclusive resort he'd incorporated the local fijian people to work the you know teach diving and everything so we went and sat and had kava with them and it was a very it was kind of like similar to a low dose of marijuana just very relaxing and everything that's a very different substance to what i'm hearing about kratom so to advertise it as a kava drink is hugely irresponsible yeah and the kava people there's so many fans of kava they they hate this shit. They get, they become furious because it really does feel like a very dangerous bait and switch. Who knows if the kava even does anything as far as the euphoria in this drink? It may just be a way to advertise it and sell it. It re- it really does to me feel. It just feels disingenuous and ra- I, I I get I get mad thinking about. It. I it's funny. I I really right when this was all happening, I I wanted to. I mean, I documented every every piece of this. And I remember I put some stuff out on my Instagram and I was so passionate about, you know, getting the word out about Kratom. And I, I still talk to, I got like 20 people all every once in a while, someone will go, I think I'm addicted to Kratom. What do I do? And I sort of started dialogue and I talked to them and I actually love, I love doing it. It's I, I was thinking if I ever didn't do stand up, I think I would want to be someone that helps people with addiction. Cause I get so much out of this and I get so invested in these people that, um, message me but man I, I i do find that my fire for it i lost a little once i once i sort of like kicked it but i'm glad we're talking about this because it's making me realize you know there's there's other people out there that that might need to hear about it and just be because like i'm okay now it doesn't it doesn't mean it's time to be quiet about it and just go on with my life because there's a kid in florida right now that could be buying it from a 7-eleven you know Absolutely. And like you said, if it's a useful tool for some people, great, then put it in the hands of medical professionals that can use it as a 
more yeah. holistic version to possibly help with that individual's you know addiction or whatever it is if it's working and if you can create markers that will be like okay this will work for you because you've got this blood work or whatever but yeah if you can buy i mean even with the energy drinks like I see firefighters that slam, you know, five, six monsters and then they have all these cardiac arrhythmias and rhabdomyolysis or I forget the word. But anyway, rhabdo. Um, and, uh, you know, the same thing. Like, oh, this is an energy drink. No, this is packed full of all these weird chemicals and crazy amounts yeah. of caffeine and sugar. And then you go put on fire gear and get into a thousand degrees and wonder why you pass out and almost die. So right. these, these conversations it. need to be had. Yeah, the Seven Eleven thing bothers me. I would say I would say this drink is more dangerous than a Seven Eleven hot dog. That's how strongly I feel. Or a or sushi. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then back to the the comedy. But thank you so much because I mean that that these are the conversations that need to be had, and you've got a lived experience that not many people have. I think so. Um, I know you worked on the movie Real Rob. So how did you meet you know, the the names that we talked about before? Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, and those guys. Dude, want to hear something crazy? So yeah, Real Rob is a series on Netflix. We have two seasons and it's only going to be on there a couple more months. So uh, I'll give that little plug out there that Real Rob's still on there. But oddly enough, in this crazy room I'm in, in the Edmonton Mall, was the first place that I had met Rob Schneider. I was doing morning radio. I was like the douchebag comedian on a radio show in my hometown. And one day Rob Schneider called in because he was promoting a show. And I was a huge fan of Rob Schneider. Huge, bigger than Adam Sandler for me, like Deuce Bigelow, huge fan, huge fan to the point where the interview was embarrassing. Like I was being a fan. I was, it was terrible. I just couldn't, I was just so excited. It was awful. And so Rob says, who's that guy? And they go, oh, that's Jamie. He's on the show. And he could tell I was a huge fan. And he goes, why don't you come open for me at my show? I'm like, what, what is happening? And so I go to this show that night. He comes in, you know, he's in town. And I'm going to meet Rob Schneider. I can't believe it. And so I meet him for two seconds. He opens up his green room door. I go, nice to meet you. The door closes. I go, well, I'll never see him again. But that was amazing. you know. And I'm about to go on stage. It was going to be me and him. And it was at a, co- at a theater at a college. And the guy in charge of the show comes up and he goes, hey, would you mind? There's this improv group from the school and they've never performed before. We want to kind of let them up, give them a chance to do their improv, you know, in front and I go, yeah, they can go up. I'm, I just, I've been on this show for like three. They just put me on, do whatever you want. I, you know, I don't know why you're asking me. And so this improv group goes up and James, let me tell you something. If there is comedy in heaven, you get to follow an improv group that has never performed before. Like <laughs> it was the best set I've ever had in my life. Like they just, like the crowd was just like prepared material. They were so excited. It was just like the best anybody would have killed. And as I'm doing my set, I hear like some big laughs coming from backstage. And I just assumed it was that guy that put the show on. And as I'm walking off stage, it's Rob Schneider who came out of his green room, watched my entire set. And he shook my hand. He was like, dude, you're very funny. He's like, are you going to, are you sticking around? I go, yeah, I'm, I'm watching your show. He's like, I want to talk to you about some stuff after the show. And I was like, okay. And so I, I went and watched the show. And as I was sitting there, I wrote him a few jokes. I wrote like a bunch of jokes down. And after the show, he was like, I'm getting back into stand-up. I wondered if he'd want to help me write. And I said, oh, I already wrote a few jokes for you. And he thought that was cool. He was impressed by that. And we started just talking on the phone. I was writing for him. I, 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 my, I think one of my big breaks with Rob was I helped him write for the roast of Quentin Tarantino. And he destroyed, like it, Stern was talking about it the next day. He had like the best set of the night. And I had helped with like some of his jokes. 
And then one day, man, he just called me up. I was on a cruise ship doing comedy, which is wasn't my favorite thing. And he said, I want to do a TV show. I want you to write it with me. Um, get off the cruise ship. Come write this. So, okay. So I just finished that up. I flew to LA and wrote this. We just wrote this TV show. No one said they were going to buy it. No one said, no one told us to write it. We just wrote it. And I was just a writer. I was, I was just writing on it. I think I had two lines in one episode or something. I had like this little part. And I think it was, we somehow got all the money for it or Rob paid for it. Rob just decided I'm going to pay for it. We're going to, we're going to shoot it. And like right before we started shooting, the guy that played Rob's assistant, who's in every episode, like a very big character. We lost him. He got a movie or something. And and Rob just goes, he's like, who are we going to get to play my assistant? He's talking to his wife. He goes, who are we going to get to play? And as he's saying it, I'm bringing them both tea. Like I'm literally serving them tea. I swear to God. And he looks up and he goes, maybe Jamie could play it. And I sit down with no notice. And I just, he goes, ah, read for the part. And so I do a couple scenes and he goes, change the, change the guy's name to Jamie. You're, you're in the show. And so I went from writer to this role in this TV show and just like a fluke, weird, crazy thing. And then, um, yeah, then the, all those guys were in the show. So like Sandler did an episode and Spade did one and Norm MacDonald and George Lopez. That was my first time meeting those guys. And then uh, and we just kept doing more, st- more stuff together. Beautiful. Well, I know with Adam Sandler, he is a big fan of the fire service too. I'm not sure exactly of his background. Um, it's one of the him and a couple other guys. Um, Steve Buscemi is a real like you know pinnacle oh, wow. guest for me. So a lot of them have these embedded stories in the fire service. So you know, did cool. you have? To, but the other thing as well is that Adam appears to be very humble. Every time I see pieces on him, he's not wearing flashy jewelry and driving crazy cars, and seems like a very down to earth person. So I'm not just specifically him but you have these people that are in hollywood talk about the 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 men themselves and and you know the the qualities of some of these people that people listening probably don't know about them yeah i don't know if it's just because i got lucky or if it's because it's the kind of people that i gravitate towards that gravitate towards me but everyone that i'm friends with and i wouldn't say i i know schneider's my probably my best friend um and I'm, I'm, I get to, to meet Sandler and Spade and everything. I'm not as close with them, but I, I know them, you know. But all of those guys, like Sandler, Schneider for sure, David Spade, Greg Gutfeld, who hosts um, the Gutfeld show, they're the greatest guys. They're, you know, they say, like, don't meet your heroes. Meet them if they're those guys. Meet them if they're those guys. Because, like, I remember the first – John Cleese, who was a hero of mine that was in – our daddy daughter trip movie. Like I had, I got to have dinner with John Cleese and Rob and I was so nervous. He's my, I mean, he's like a a hero of mine. Same thing. Like just the greatest guy. They'll tell you stories about, he'll tell Monty Python skit stories if you want to. And I feel like all like that little group, like you said, dude, Sandler, so humble. So like empathetic. I feel like he, when you're, I was just in a, this is so name dropping, but I was just in a, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was in a hotel room with Sandler, Judd Apatow, Rob Schneider, and my friend. And I was just felt honored to listen to the conversation. I, I my, the whole time I'm like, this is wonderful. Like these start, And it, I think it was Adam at some point he goes, it was Adam or Judd turned to me and said, so what's going on with the Gutfeld stuff? Like that's going good for you. And I was like, what? Someone's talking to me. Like, 
they just genuinely just good people to the point where I don't get the whole fake Hollywood thing because it's just not my experience. Like even with Rob, like I was, you know, he invited me to his wedding. Like he, you know, he calls my kids and sings happy birthday when it's their birthdays. He, you know, like these are, I don't know. I feel very fortunate to be even Greg Gutfeld. He, um, he, for the last almost 20 years has been like such a, he, he's been so supportive of me and such a fan and such a good friend. When you're on the show with him, I just did Gutfeld with Roseanne Barr, a couple other guests in Gutfeld. And there were a couple times when Roseanne was talking to me in between, like we film and then you go to commercial, she would be talking. You can hear her. If you watch the show, you can hear her talking when we go back on the air because you can't tell because it's not a character. Like, he's just the same guy. Like he's such a genuine guy that she, she honestly couldn't tell when we were, when we were on the air and when we weren't, because it's the same guy. Yeah. I, I can't say enough about that crew, man. Just yeah. Spade too. Like just such a, and just, they're all, they're all the, the legendary dinners, like legendary stories and yeah, just a great group. And Norm was one of the, was one of my favorite people I've ever met in my whole life. Norm McDonald. Well, it's so important to hear that. So I I became good friends with Josh Brolin after an interview on here, funny enough. Um, but he did Only the Brave, which is a beautiful movie about the Prescott 19, the 19 uh, Arizona firefighters we lost a few years ago in the wildland fire. Um, and, you know, I see some of these people that I know are great humans getting attacked. Oh, you're just an actor. Shut up. You don't have this opinion, you know. And, and it's so important. Yes, of course, there are prima donnas in acting, in music, in sports, in firefighting, in police. But most of us are, you know, just normal people that happen to do this profession or that. And I think it's it's important for us to highlight the John Cena's of the world that are actually doing incredible things, you know, with their platforms, you know, and and the people that are just humble and nice and just happen to be, you know, in that particular profession. Mm-hmm. Dude, John Cena. What a, what a, what a sweetheart of a guy. Did you, have you ever interviewed John Cena? Not yet. I've interviewed his stunt double. I'm hoping to one day, but again, it's one of those things you don't want to push too much, but I would right. love to have him on and talk about all that stuff. I mean, I'm not even a huge wrestling fan, but hey. I'm enamored by anyone that has that kind of a platform and uses it to do good. Yeah. He did a commercial with Rob Schneider once and I was the writer on it. I was so star- I was starstruck by everybody, even R- Rob. I was starstruck by at the time, and I remember he would just like come over and talk, like you were just a regular guy. And at the and I remember we had like a nice rapport. And at the end of the commercial, John Cena, he goes, "Hey, take my cell phone number." I'm like, "What?" And he goes, "I don't no business, but if there's ever like you want to chat, you know, want to say hi, or one of your kids wants to," and I was like, "This is crazy." And then like I don't know, it was like a few. Months ago, I saw him in some show that, and he was like, he was, I can't, that, that show where he's the superhero, it's so good. Oh, God, it's so good. I know he's probably done more. He's so funny. But I just, I messaged him and I said, dude, you, we're, you, I'm watching this with my son. Like, you're killing it. And he texts me right back. I, it's just so funny how, like, you're right. Like, it's just, it, the more you get into it, you realize that most guys are just like regular guys. That helped me with, um, I used to have, I think, this. I used to really think like when things were really tough, I used to think like, Oh, if I do that, I'll be happy. Or those guys must have the perfect life for this much. And on the other side of it too, you, I, I feel like 
being on some movie sets or being on whatever, it really does help you like realize that everyone has struggles and everyone has, you know, people are normal, but people also have like tough times too. And you realize that like, that's true for, it's true for everybody. And I feel stupid, but like, I don't think I knew that. I, I truly think I thought that if you were a movie star, like you had no problems or if you were, I, I thought you just had like this, this life with no obstacles and whatever, but being around it, you're like, Oh, wow. Like, it's just, everyone has their own shit that they have to deal with. And it's just on a different level. And there's just, just regular people. Right. Yeah. Well, even the same, the same impacts, I think that we see in the first responder professions, we talk about, I talk about, you know, in, in acting and in, in music that, you know, that thing, that creative element may well have come from, you know, childhood experiences and that forged you into maybe again wanting acceptance on a stage, whether it's with, you know, holding a guitar or whether it's acting. But then you have that isolation element of touring. You know, a lot of these people are up, as you said, through the night. So you've got sleep deprivation and circadian rhythm disruption. So you look at it analytically, the same things that affect us in uniform you apply to music and you know comedy and and acting and you see the same things we see musicians taking their own lives you see musicians overdosing you know the same thing in in acting and comedy and so by pigeonholing people and saying oh well you you know you can't have a voice because you do this or you do that we're all human beings some of us wear a uniform some of us hold a microphone but we're all having that same human experience right yeah 100% and sometimes i think the musicians and sometimes even the comedians feel like some people in the crowd might might want you to act that way. Like it's almost expected. If you're a rock star, you better be partying or you better be trashing the hotel room. And it's funny the the day you realize, like all you have to do is get through a few. No thanks. I don't want to go out drinking with you guys. Have a good time, and they call you a pussy. And all you got to do is get through a few of those, and you can live a pretty normal life. And go to sleep at a reasonable hour and you know, all the priorities change and you know, it's, it's funny what, um, yeah, I feel like I like looking back, I don't know if you've ever done this with you. I don't know how old you are, but I look back and I almost can't believe that it was me. Like I look back on other parts of my life and I go, Oh my God, I can't believe, like, I can't believe that guy did all that shit. But then I would, I would change nothing. I would change nothing. But sometimes I am amazed at how dumb that guy was, that I was <laughs> back then. Well, like you said, I mean, even generationally, you're talking about, um, you know, the the, the drinking and, and the partying and that kind of thing 20 years ago. We weren't having transparent, courageous mental health conversations 20 years ago. It was still very much taboo. So, you know, when you look back, I love that phrase, well, they did the best with what they had. I mean, you are a product of the environment. And so now is a time for all of us in all these different positions to have these conversations to try and pull people from the shadows and say hey that thing that we were all taught when we were in our teens is kind of bullshit i know it's you know better late than never but let's start now let's start addressing these traumas and addictions and you know all these things that are causing misery you know and and causing people to overcompensate whether it's the giant houses and flashy cars or drinking their sorrows away or you know infidelity whatever it is yeah. Yeah, it's funny, man. I was just thinking about um this might be too much information, but I was just thinking about too how sometimes people send me messages. I'm so guilty of sending like every once in a while I leave voice messages. Like I just told you I didn't really check my 
DMs on Instagram. But every once in a while, if I'm sitting on a plane, that's how I saw like Ben's or whatever. Sometimes I'll go through and leave a voice message for everybody. I'll just be like bored at an airport and I'll just leave strangers. Like if they go, oh, I love you from this. I'll go like, hey, it's Jamie. I just want to say thanks for watching. I, I don't know. I just, just I think it's a fun thing to do. And um, every once in a while, I'll get like a um, like a your life is perfect kind of thing. Like, oh, man, you must have the life, whatever. Every single time. I don't know if you're supposed to do this. I don't know if a publicist would tell me this is a bad idea. Every time I leave him a voicemail and I go, hey, just to let you know, I woke up this morning. I didn't want to get out of bed. I dragged myself to the ice bath. I was miserable. I was like, why? Why did these people even hire me? They must have gotten the wrong name. This has to be a mistake. And I leave them a message about like, it's not that perfect. And it, and it takes a lot of work just to get to the point where like, it even looks like that from, you know, like through, it's, it's just, I think it's to give them like the whole story of like what I did all day long to lead up to like that television appearance. No one would ever believe what I do the day of like to lead up to maybe making it look kind of effortless. Like it's, three hours of a morning routine followed by like five hours of writing that involves like a saw. It's like a lot of crazy stuff. So I always try to let people in on that little part of it. I also think, man, like if you look at, there have been moments where I, I I know I do struggle with like some mental illness type of things and where what makes it like our careers also lend themselves to like, say if you were wondering like I have mood swings, like I'll have like a lot, like super crazy highs and super crazy lows. Well, the other problem with a musical career or a comedy career is you can have crazy highs and lows, but also this career is a career in which you might be getting external things that are causing you these highs and lows that you might not get if you worked at Starbucks or if I still worked at Arby's. Because sometimes I've had someone call me and say, you have a part in a TV show. We're so excited to offer it to you. It's 22 episodes. And then I've lost the part like a couple hours later. So it's like these crazy or like, we're going to pay you this much money for whatever. And then it's half of that or you lose it. Like, so it, there's also like these real highs and lows coming in externally that you're then struggling with like the normal highs and lows of a regular life. Like in these industries, like there's some crazy ups and downs that happen regardless you know, of, of what your baseline mental health is. Yeah. And it's the same in the fire service. I mean, we'll literally, I've had shifts where I've had to deliver a baby, which is amazing. And you know, you, you, it's one of the most incredible things you can do as a paramedic. And then in a paramedic clinical, the same day I'm extubating someone on life support. So I'm taking a life, you know what I mean? So we slightly different, like you said, as far as highs and lows, you know, contracts and, and appearances and, and, you know, movie opportunities, but it's the same thing. It's, it's a you stress and distress at the extremes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, um, one of the thing, the other things that I, I, get a lot from people that are in the entertainment industry is that facade of overnight success. You talked mm -hmm. about, you know, the 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 courage to step away from home, do these menial jobs, start building up your stand-up career. When you look at the roller coaster that was your life and and the career quote unquote um highs and lows, you know, 
it seems like right now you're you're in a very very good place again we talked about this before we hit record what has been you know what are the pinnacles as far as the um the optics from audience and you um and then what has been that that real world journey behind the curtain like how much graft has been if people looked at you now go oh that guy's lucky he just started doing comedy and now he's (laughs) he's doing everything he's doing yeah it's been it's been a journey i mean because after doing a bunch of tv shows and stuff in 2001 and having like all this heat and people were like excited about me i followed that up with a good 12 years of not doing much where from my perspective, like I, w- I would say I was underperforming, n- not a- not doing that well, like considering quitting on a weekly basis, like that's how tough it was for so many years. And then like meeting Rob Schneider when I was at the radio job, I felt like that was a, I felt like I kind of took a job that was safe. I felt like I was admitting a little bit of defeat on the career I really wanted but it made sense. Like I, I had a kid and I got to spend a lot of time with this baby. So no regrets there, but it did feel like maybe it was over for me. And then the Rob Schneider Netflix stuff was definitely like a, an injection of fuel. Like uh, I, f- I felt like there were moments where I was like, oh my God, this is uh maybe I could, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can be a comedian again because I'm on this Netflix show. And, but what's interesting is you never know what's going to, when you're a stand-up comedian, you want to sell tickets and you want you want so many people to come that it impacts the club's bottom line. Like when they have you at their club, they go, holy shit, you sold all these. T- this is great. Like we're doing better. And with um with the Netflix show, it didn't really do that. Like you would get we had fans and we had like a nice fan base, but it wasn't anything where a club would say we got to have him back next year. We sold out all these shows. And so. Well, that was like a like I consider that an absolute high point. It um, there were still much more challenges and and journey ahead. There's a, a much longer path ahead because that was probably, man, that was like seven years ago we did that show. And what's been crazy is so I, I tour with Schneider for a few years, which is a I mean that's a great that's a great gig too. You get to perform at sold out, you know, theaters and it's freaking packed. I'm hanging out with Rob like. Not a bad life, right? Not complaining. But when I, it was, I think it was a year ago when I started doing the Gutfeld that's like been beating Jimmy Fallon in the ratings, like the new version of Gutfeld, where the first time I did that show, I was, I just, you know, I just did it like I always do, do the show from years ago, the old Red Eye show. And I did a couple jokes. I felt like it went well. I went home, went to sleep. And that weekend, I was opening for Schneider at the stress factory in New Jersey and 70 people came because I mentioned that I was going to be opening for him. The club owner was like, yeah, all these people came from here. And I was like, what? And it wasn't even my show. It was Rob. I was just the opener. So I was like, ah, oh, this is, this is interesting. And then me and Gre- you know, Greg was like, how often can you come on? I know you live in Alaska. You know, how often can you come on the show? And I was like, as often as you'll let me come on. Like, this is, this is wild that people like it's it's one thing to, I don't know. It's a real thing for someone to watch you do something on TV and then pay money to see you do stand up. It's not a given. Like even if you see someone in a movie, you might not go, Oh, that guy might be funny to see at the comedy club. Like you just never know what's going to move people. And for some reason, something with Gutfeld, because 
I've been able to give so much of my, like I'm this guy who lives in Alaska. It's so far away from everything that is comedy. I had like a pretty shitty divorce. It's tough. I have kids in Alaska and somehow I've been able to really talk about all that stuff to the point where not a show goes by where we don't make a joke about the fact that I'm this lonely loser in Alaska that got divorced <laughs> and has no money. And so it's almost been, it's allowed me to therapeutically, th- this is all the truth. A lot of this stuff is the truth. Like a lot of stuff we talk about, like it's some sad shit, but it's like, this is my life. And so I think something about it's Gutfeld is more than doing just five minutes of stand-up comedy on a, on a late show. It's like really being vulnerable and getting a lot of time. It's almost like doing a, like, you know how podcasts are really packing comedy clubs too. Cause you really get, it's like that backstory. If you watch two people fight in the UFC, if you know, one of them was homeless a year ago and you like, you know, this story, you're like, I want that guy to win. It almost gives like, like these layers to who you are instead of just regular jokes. And so this, like what's happening now is it's borderline like absolutely surreal and ridiculous. Like it makes, it's so crazy. Like I go with my kids to Disneyland and I got recognized by so many people and they like, they'd want to take pictures or whatever. And my kids, they don't know that's like, that's not something they they're aware of. Like my little kid was like, how did that person know you? And I would go, oh, I do this TV show, whatever. And it was just this wild thing. And my kids were doing this bit where they would, when I would wake my my daughter up in the morning, I'd be like, hey, it's time to get up. We're going. She would go, are you Jamie Lisso? Can I get a fit? They were doing like this. Big- <laughs> and it's just, it's absolutely maybe at some point it will get old. People are like, I'm so sorry to bother you while you're with your kids. I'm like, nah, screw those guys. Let's take a picture. It's, <laughs> it's really nice. Like, I'm just very grateful that that they're that they're out there and they even want a picture because it's it's just so it's just it's been a long time. And honestly, like. I've been doing stand-up for 25 years. Like whether no one, nobody came to the shows or people came, I've been doing it like almost every night for 25 years. And so it is my absolute joy to have, like I just did the Irvine Improv last week. It was, we sold that. It was like 500 seats. And it's an absolute joy to bring these people that, that know me from Gutfeld and do this act that I have been working on for 20 plus years and have them go like, holy shit, we didn't even know you did stand up. And like, I've been behind, I feel like behind the scenes, I've been waiting for this moment to, to do the act and actually have pe- people in the crowd. You know, I've done it a lot when no one was there. So it's wild to, to just have, you know, be selling the tickets. It's, it's pretty amazing. Oh, it's so good to hear. I mean, like I said, even just a few short months ago when we talked, that was, I think, prior to this real upswing. And as you said, you went through a divorce. I went through a divorce too, and they're, they're absolutely awful. Um, you know, you lost your father when you were young, and you had the bullying. When you, I mean, there's all these things that have created these these challenges, and and there were healthy coping mechanisms, there are unhealthy healthy coping mechanisms. But now, like you said, you got your sobriety, you've got this routine, and now things are starting to really kind of manifest yet again, like like other times. But um, you know, I think this is this is such a, an important insight and so i asked this question is there's this instagram highlights facade that someone's journey is like yeah i took up you know i wrote some jokes and then i was on jimmy fallon for the next 10 years no that's not what happens it's not what happens in the fire service or any of these other professions so you know hearing as you said that real human experience of these highs and these lows but also that dogged determination that that truly was your burning why that mm-hmm. it's you know again you're having another kind of um ups uptick here um especially in this medium and we found 
ourselves in this this unique world that is the internet that I think kind of crushed a lot of previous film and television and now I think people are finding their feet and now it's being able to be used in a very very positive way and like you said not just have a comedian on your screen but now understand that who that human is and the backstory and that I think as you said really draws people to want to see you Jamie Lisso rather than the two-dimensional version yeah you know what else is great about um social media I felt like for years I wanted to I, when I was a little kid, I would make little videos and show them to my friends. And that's, that was like part of the love of what I loved about, you know, creating jokes and creating little scenes. And just one day I realized, cause real Robert ended and I was like, Oh, I, you know, I don't really like audition for gigs. I only just hang out in people's kitchens and hope they offer me stuff. And so I just, I, I remember sitting there one day and thinking, Oh, wait a minute, I could make a video like for the artist, it really provides like this way to, I did one this morning. I literally did a, a little thing this morning about this hotel room and it was so fun and I loved it and I didn't do it. So people will buy tickets to my show. I didn't do it. So I would get more followers. I did it because I thought it was really funny. And I said it to a couple of friends and I was like, Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I should do this for whoever might want to laugh on a, on a Friday. So I love that we all get this little outlet to, film something stupid every single day if we want to and get it out there. Cause I felt like, I felt like for a while I didn't do that. And your stand-up comedy act is sometimes the same thing you're doing. You're taking the same 45 minutes or hour. You're taking it to all these different cities. And at some point you're not doing what you did to get there. Cause you're just sort of like remembering this, this stuff you wrote and now you have this act. So it's real easy to, which almost goes back to, it's easy to, drink every night and wake up in the afternoon because you already wrote your hour. And if they've seen it in Omaha, well, let's just go to New York and do it there. It's like this real, that th there's a way to be really lazy about it. And, uh, but I, this, this way is much better. I think, uh, I think even for mental health, I think it's much better just to be able to create stuff and get it out there. Absolutely. So you're not stagnating. Yeah. Well, you talked about working with John Cleese. I mean, I've, I've loved him when we were in England, Monty Python, Faulty Towers. I mean, all these things that oh, him and yeah. his uh, his peers did. I mean, that was the core of, of really British television. I think the British comedy is an absolute, you know, social glue for us, especially in a, a country as beautiful as it is. It's very gray and very wet and very cold. And we seem to get a lot of wars. So it's good to have, you know, the ability to laugh. Um so talk to me about the daddy-daughter trip, you know, working with John Cleese and when people can expect that to come out. Yeah, so you know I did. So I wrote that movie with um, my writing partner, Patricia Schneider, who's Rob's wife, and Rob Schneider also wrote that one. And I don't know how it happened, but, you know, when you're writing the movie, they go, usually Rob will go, hey, we should give you a part in the movie, you know, like because you wrote it. And so I just gave myself a part where I knew I would be working with John Cleese. I don't even know if I did this. Like, I don't know if I asked anybody. I think I just said like, Hey, why don't I be the guy? And so I knew I would have a day with John Cleese, you know? And so I got to do this scene with him and we just, we just like totally hit it off. It was, it was really cool. And it was cool to be dinner was the dinner with him was totally different than being the actor in a scene with him because we're, you know, we were like coworkers that day we were colleagues and, um, yeah. And so that was, I can't say enough about that. Like he was a, a week after we 
wrapped with John Cleese. He went back to England and um, I was walking down the street and I got an unknown number on my phone, which I never answered. And for some reason I answered it. I think because it was LA and I answered and it was this girl and she was like, Hey, I have, I have John Cleese for you. And I was like, what? I didn't, he didn't know he had my phone number and he called just to see how things were going on the film. John Cleese. And I literally was alone in the road, just like looking around, like I'm on the phone with John. And he just called <laughs> back in. It was so cool. And, um, but yeah, so that movie, daddy daughter trip, it's going to come out streaming. We don't know exactly where very soon, but we did a theatrical release in Arizona that, that went really well. It was filmed uh, a lot of places in Arizona show up in the film. And so we wanted to um, do it do a theatrical release there. And then it just got released in uh, like a few thousand theaters in Mexico last month, but will be available for streaming soon. They're just hammering out where it will show up. Beautiful. Well, I'm excited to see that. Um, I want to throw some uh, quick closing questions at you, if that's okay, before I let you go. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I will do a little plug here. I'll tell you, please. We just, we just finished writing another movie, which is called the animal Two. I don't know if you remember the animal. I saw the animal. Great film. But um, we wrote the uh, we wrote the sequel for um, for Fo- and that's going to be on Fox Tubi, and um, we're filming that here in a few months. So that'll be the next that'll be the next one out. Fantastic! Yeah, the first one was hilarious. Yeah, I loved it. I loved that one. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. I'm All ready right. for the question. Beautiful. Well, the first question: Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our conversation today or completely unrelated. One million percent, the most recommended book. I recommend is called, this is going to sound weird, but it's called Healing Back Pain by John Cerno. And the reason it's, I so passionately recommend this book is because um, I had a crazy back injury that happened while we were filming Real Rob. And it's this interesting book about like the, like the connection between the mind and body and how a lot of back, like back injuries are, it sounds crazy when I talk about it. He sounds much more intelligent speaking about it than I will. But, you know, like when you get nervous, your palms sweat. So our mind and body are absolutely connected. And this book saved my life. It absolutely saved my life. I couldn't walk. And I read this book and I never went to the doctor. And my back was healed. And, it, and the back injury never came back. Howard Stern, um, the introduction to his book, Private Parts, he thanks Dr. Cerno for saving his, his life and his back. It was recommended to me by Greg Gutfeld who had a similar experience. It's just this, it's just this amazing, you know, some people have real need back surgery and have, of course have, you know, um, something that's a a physiological issue with their back, but so many times it's, uh, it's, it's psychological. And it, this book changed my life. I just had a woman who was a doctor um, that had back pain and I recommended it to her and I go, you probably know this, you're a doctor and she didn't know about it and she read it and she's having like a lot of success. So I, uh, that's my most recommended book. Beautiful. I'm going to have to look that up. There's a, a system that I use called foundation training and it's a similar thing. It was a guy who's a chiropractor, but he completely destroyed his own back lifting very heavy as a young um, personal trainer and then he got into chiropractic and through all his kind of reading and knowledge of you know yoga and pilates and things created this movement practice and it, and it is like you said the physiological damage this will actually help add um, support to the muscles around your back which then in turn stops the pain so but that kind of psychosomatic you know body brain element um, there's a book 
the body keeps the score, which you know trauma oh, yeah. from your pasthood, your your childhood can express through disease and and pain. So I'm going to have to look that book up and maybe try and get him on the show. I swear to God, I could show you, but I won't bore you with it. I was listening to that book this morning on my mall walk. Oh, really? I was. I just started it. It's amazing. I'm about halfway through. I had it recommended a thousand times, but I hadn't actually listened. But it's a very long read. So my wife lives at the moment yeah. four hours away because she's in medical school. So when I'm driving to and from her, and that's normally when I kind of chip away at it. But yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I was I was also intimidated by the length, but I'm doing the audio book and it's, uh, it's excellent so far. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then this is your world. Are there any movies and or documentaries that you love? Oh, man, I got to really think. I got to really think. I am. I love a new television series on. I know you just asked movies and I, I changed it. You asked movies and what was oh documentaries. Yeah, but TV movies. as well. I mean, any any screen stuff, basically. Um, this is what I do on Gutfeld. I don't answer the question. I <laughs> answer to a different question. Um, there's a show called The Patriot on Amazon Prime. It's one of the funniest best shows i've ever seen in my life i loved it so much just just super unique super funny very original beautifully shot written and directed um the movie thing man you really got me oh my god i loved i'm going recent here because i have a bad memory anyway but i loved barbarian did you see barbarian i did not fantastic movie kind of a thriller horror movie one of the best ones I've seen in a decade. Really? I'm going to check yeah. that out now. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? You know, you know who's like the – I mean, this is going to sound like um, – Rob Schneider is such an intelligent, like well-read, fun interview – you would love him. You guys would totally get along. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not making any kind of connection to first responders. I, I'm, there's no connection there. I don't think, but I just feel like just from talking to you, I feel like you guys w could find some, some common ground and have a great conversation. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with the guest is the guest list is very diverse, so it doesn't have to be at that because like i said we're people first we're firefighters yeah. second so so yeah if you're able to help you know the the possibility of that happening i would love to get him on the show let's do it awesome brilliant all right well the next one i actually been waiting to this to ask you this because you've touched on your morning routine i think it's very important what do you do to decompress and if you want kind of unpack how you get from that i can't drag myself out of bed to that state where you can write and perform so I have two answers to this one. I'm going to, I'll give you the answer of when I'm, when I'm doing things really well, when things are going well, when things are not good, I ever, I'm not, I, I fuck, I don't do the routine. I don't like, I just get out of whack. But when I'm in my, like when things are going, when I'm doing things right, I mean, I wake up and I do, I'm a big fan of the, um, Huberman lab podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever listened to that. Um, but I do, I wake up and before getting out of bed, I do like a Wim Hof breathing exercise that I just get off of YouTube. I do that almost every day, even when I'm not doing everything correctly. I do that before I get out of bed. And I feel like that really helps. I can tell, I can tell when I don't do it. And then I, um, I travel around with this, uh, I don't know where it is with, with a, 
it's a called a Louvre light, like L U V. It's like lumens. It um, you know, it just like mimics sunlight. And I read that that really helps reset your circadian rhythm when you change time zones a lot, like I do. Like I just literally flew. I flew from L.A. to Fairbanks, Alaska, to Seattle, to New York, to Seattle, to Edmonton, Canada in the last four days. And so, I don't know, I get something out of that. Like, I just look at it for 20 minutes. And you can even do it. Sometimes I'll jump on my computer and update my website and set it behind my laptop, just this light. And um, every day, unless it's impossible, I will do a cold plunge. Every day, unless it's impossible. If I have, I've even asked for hotels, like sometimes shittier hotels have bathtubs. And if I know I can't get a cold plunge in the area, I'll be like, yeah, stick me in that Ramada in. I know they have like a bathtub and I'll, I just, in if I can find a, in New York city, I have a place I go that has, you know, it's a bathhouse or a spa, but if they don't have one, I will do, I will go to that ice machine and I will, I, I take a pillowcase and I fill it with ice like five times. And I, I just fill it with water and I do a, um, I do like some, some f- three to five minute, cold plunges, probably like two to three per day. I always do the sauna that that goes out the window when I'm on the road, unless I'm in New York city. Um, but that, and those are my must do's like those four things with, I think that was four things and then copious amounts of coffee. And I like to do, I love to do a coffee with a morning walk. If I can get I I rarely have this much time, but if I could do like a one to two hour walk where I'll do, I'll try to schedule a call or even like posting on Instagram. I try to always do that while I'm walking. I'll even like edit the video as I'm walking and do, I hate sitting around wasting time, but the coffee and the walk is also a big part of my morning routine. I think that's all of them. Do you and do then, the do you do the contrast between the cold plunge and the sauna? Do you go back and forth when you're in that facility? When I yeah, when I'm in the facility, I do. It's funny though, man. I went to that place because of the saunas. They have like eleven saunas. They have like a maybe less than that. They have like a Turkish sauna that's two hundred degrees. They have a steam room, all this stuff. And there was this cold plunge. And yeah, I'd like dip in the cold plunge now and then. But it was mainly I went there for the sauna, and I would do like a lot of hot, cold, whatever. But the more research I did into cold plunges, the more, depending on what your goals are, like if your goals are, you know, fat loss or move, sometimes it's good to go. This is a badass move. If you're looking to like, uh, if you're looking for something fun to try, you go cold. So like cold plunge for two minutes, then you get out. And instead of going in the sauna, you let your body warm you up. Like you sit outside and you're freezing and then you cold again. It's just, it's fucking hard. It's terrible. And then you let your body warm yourself off again and you cold again because it induces like a shivering response, which I guess is good for fat loss and some other things. So I will do the hot cold, but sometimes I'll do a triple cold. And now that when I go to that place, if the cold plunge is closed, I don't want to go. Like it used to be all sauna for me. Now it's all cold plunge. That's why I go right when I get there. I don't warm up first. I just go boom. I just jump in that cold plunge. It's uh. It's my favorite thing. And I know people, I know a lot of people like, um, I feel like people are hating on the cold plunge lately. Like I saw some guy saying, oh, people are bragging about, you know, they think it's like manly or it's like, I'm telling you, man, I go to this place in New York and there's some 80 year olds in there. It's men and women. It's the most diverse group of people I've ever met in my life. And not one of them, none of us are posting this shit on Instagram. Well, that's, 
that's why people talk because I've noticed that I'm in an echo chamber. I'm in a very you know wellness um, oriented group. But, you know, I I was joking the other day, it's almost like the new, if a tree falls in a forest and no one sees it, did it really fall? It's like, if an <laughs> ice bath really... happens and no one film it, did it really happen? Because I see on my feed all the time, and I know they're good, I'm not against them, but it's literally like, just have the bath and leave your fucking phone somewhere else. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree with you. It's funny though, it's weird how I was in Alaska, I live in Alaska, and I was... uh I jumped in this river there. It was freezing cold and I was so compelled to post it. And I didn't, I've definitely done a couple. I always do it like a funny thing or something, but I've never done just like a, yeah, just posting for the sake of posting. Yeah. Even what, I mean, once isn't bad, but it's like every morning breaking the ice. Yeah, we get it. Okay. It's Let me guess. It's cold. It's wet and you're getting in it. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way I actually enjoyed more was getting in the cold ocean. So again, not Alaska, but the UK RC is, fucking so cold but getting in that you know being able to swim around a bit rather than just sitting there i've, I've always loved that the cold lakes and those kind of things but i live in florida it's kind of hard to find any body of water that isn't you know tepid here so florida's tough man because even the florida i tried doing i had a tough time in florida get try, finding a cold plunge and i even tried a cold shower and the water wasn't cold enough even the water in alaska out of the tap i can pretty much do a cold plunge just because it's so cold. But Florida, I had trouble. Florida, the cold shower was not even cold. It was a tough one. So what's, I've been to ask you earlier, what took you to Alaska initially? I, um, dude, I did, a, I did a gig there 25 years ago and I met a girl and we just like, it was like this love at first sight thing. We were both really drunk and um, we got married and then we had kids. And then at one point we decided to move to Alaska to be closer to her family. And then we did get divorced. So, so that's where, that's where they go to school and live. And so I just, I bought a house up there and I go there every second that I can. So talk to me, you, you work in LA and New York and all these places, which you know I've talked about before is it's so ironic because you're surrounded by millions of people yet people feel so lonely and there's right. millions of people, but they're so detached from nature and i think this is one of the reasons why we have so much violence in the inner cities is we literally stack people on top of each other and we totally make it devoid of the very connection they're supposed to have small communities small tribes and nature so what is that paradox for you like talk to me about what you experience when you go back to alaska yeah that's a great point about the cities and also i remember reading this thing just real quick but i remember reading this thing where when a lot of uh, police officers go to domestic ab abuse situations, oftentimes the TV's on really loud and people are screaming. There's something also with noise where you can't just like quietly talk to someone. You're, you're like shouting over the noise of whatever. And that's like that in the city too, man. Like it's, it's like you, there's no space to think, you know, um, it's so different. I I'm guilty of when I go to New York city, there are times when I fly in, I go to my hotel I take a subway to my cold plunge place, coffee shop, walk across the street to the studio where we film, hotel, and I go back home. I don't, I don't do enjoy like we stay in it's it's in Times Square. It's like the worst fucking place in the I just don't I just don't enjoy I don't like when there's traffic when you're walking. Like, you're like, sorry, I'm late. There was traffic and I was walking. Like, you can't, like, get around people. It drives me crazy to walk really slow and you can't get around people. So, to be honest, I don't do too much 
there's this cool little path on the Upper East Side that I go to sometimes. I think it's called like the Sky Path or the Skywalk, and it's they're trying. Like it's it's a little bit of nature within, you know, the constraints of New York City. But for the most part, I ride the Peloton in the basement of the hotel and I just wait till it's time to leave. And then Alaska, it's 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 one of the my, I would say my favorite quote aside from earn your dopamine is the obstacle is the way, you know, like Marcus Aurelius, like the impediment to the way is the way. When I first moved to Alaska, I was very bitter. I felt like I had been sort of like tricked to move there against my will. And then I get, I get divorced and now I'm living 5,000 miles away from, you know, my job and like all this shit. I was really mad and I was really bitter. And then once I sort of just decided, what if this was the best thing that ever happened to me? What if I just decided I wanted to live here? This is the best thing that ever happened to me. And ever since I've done that, I've really noticed that I don't think I could live in LA or New York and like wake up and do comedy and yeah, showbiz. And then, go back to in sleep, wake up, show. But I go to Alaska. My kids didn't even know why I was being recognized. They don't know what there's, they have no concept of that whole world, which I love. And say you want to go, I cross country ski in Alaska a lot. And if you want to go cross country skiing, you put your skis in your car, you drive three minutes and you just get out and start skiing. Like there's no, there's no lift ticket or like, you don't pay much. You just go ski. So you could go ski. Sometimes I'll only have 20 minutes. And I'll ski for 20 minutes around like a, a park, like a track. And then I get back in the car and I go home. You don't have to do like a big ski day. Everything's so accessible. I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of, of uh, fat biking where you have the fat tire and you ride around on your bike, whatever. And um, I absolutely love it. I love that my kids go to school and it's a small town. They go to school in these small little classrooms and these, you know, these schools that don't have that many people. Everybody knows each other. I absolutely love like the 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 vast difference between that and the big city. And then I think it's fun to, you know, I, I, I get ex- my kids get excited when they see like a target. They're like, oh my god, this city has a target. You know, like I think it keeps their stimulus. It minimizes like the stimulus for my kids because there's there's just not that much there. It's interesting as well when you talk about you know that that fate took you there and you it was a, such a change from the city. When I I met my previous wife, my my son's uh, mother, when we were in Japan, I used to do stunts and she was a dancer then. And so we moved to the states. We were in Florida. She wanted to go to LA and do the whole acting thing as well. So I got hired in Anaheim, and then we got pregnant. Had my little boy, and she wanted to come back to Florida. We we're going to be close to her family, and so it broke my heart because I left Anaheim, my my favorite department, hands down. Um, but it was for family, so I made that sacrifice just like you did. And it's not a sacrifice initially. You, you prioritize family, like we talked about earlier. But she, the the family that we were supposed to move close to, that was supposed to help, that never really was a thing in the end then i ended up getting divorced because i found out you know there was infidelity but that's beside the point now um but again and then i was trying to go back to california and it was when the housing crisis hit there was a hiring freeze and for two or three years i was angry like what the fuck is going on why can't i go back and i wasn't going to leave my son i was going to try and move him because his ex his my ex had shown interest in moving back separately so we'd be in the same town in orange county again but it didn't happen because it wasn't supposed to happen. And so once I made peace with that, I ended up meeting you know, my wife now. And I tell my little boy all the time, like, California is beautiful, but it's overcrowded and it's super expensive. And then, you know, who's in power at the time can make your life a misery as well, especially if a virus sweeps through. Um, so, you know, 
now where we live, I mean, you know, it's it's still a suburban town, but it's horse country, really. So it is mm-hmm. beautiful. The air is clean. It's sunny every day. And then if we want to go other places, we travel and then we come back to a state where most people save their whole life to go visit once, same as Alaska. So I think that's that's a really important insight that, you know, when life takes you somewhere, sometimes by submitting you realize all the good rather than just the few bads that you were focusing on the whole time. Yeah, but where are you exactly? So I live in Ocala. So if you put a pin right in the heart of uh, Orlando, it's just over an hour north of, uh, excuse me, in the heart of uh, Florida, just about an hour north of Orlando. Gotcha. Okay, I'm doing a little Florida tour in July. I'm making a stop in Orlando. Oh, beautiful. Well, I have to come see the show then. Yeah, it's funny, man. Like with I think it's almost like a caricature of exactly what you're talking about that sometimes you, and sometimes it, it, it you need to look back and go, Oh, those shitty things were good because of that. Like sometimes it's hard in the moment to submit and to accept it. It's so funny though. Like I was realizing that this, this like character that I've created on TV, that's not a character. It's, it's my shitty life or whatever, not <laughs> shit, but, but like being like this divorce guy from Alaska. So if I didn't have all these things to complain about, who would I be? So like, who would this guy be on TV? Would I just be another guy, another comedian from New York? Well, okay, that's all right. But all the stuff I complained about is the stuff. And I mean, it's, it's a significant, it helps me significantly because say for instance, I I'm going on Gutfeld and I'm not like super political. Say I'm going on Gutfeld and they say, Hey, topic a is about abortion and abortion law. You know, I can go, yeah, I'm so bad with girls. I had a girl ask for an abortion before I even slept with her. You know, like I can, I can, I can make a, I can, I'm this loser who I don't have to go right at this issue, which also a hundred people have already probably gone at this issue today. We've probably heard all of these. And for me, I can go, Hey, we don't even allow those in Alaska because blah, blah, blah. Or it just gives me like this, this like kind of place to, it gives me like a lens to see everything through. And it's all the shit I was complaining about. It all ended up being the best part, you know? Absolutely. Well, even for me, like I bounced around, started in just north of Miami in the first fire department, California for a few years, back to the Orlando area, Orange County, and then through divorce and being a single dad, kind of transitioned to the the, the one that protects Disney. So it's four fire departments. Had I not had that divorce and those geographical changes, I wouldn't have the optics or the lens of the fire service from all these different geographical points. And then the last one created an environment where I was compelled to leave to then stand outside and be able to advocate for the people still in uniform. So if I hadn't gone through all that shit, I never would have been able to create this platform. I'd probably still be somewhat happy in California doing, you know, 24 hours at a time. Hell yeah, man. I believe all of that with every ounce of my soul, like that, that all the things that happened led us to this moment. And if you look at your life in this moment and you're not happy and you're going, well, that's bullshit. I don't like it. Well, then it's, it's, it's coming like it really is coming and, and everything it's so silly but everything seems like it really does happen for a reason when you look back on it it really does seem true absolutely well for people listening then where are the best places to learn more about you maybe find out when the movies are coming out and then anywhere on social media so i will say i know i talk about rob schneider a lot and um I just don't want people to think all I do is like ride off the success of Rob Schneider. Um, so I have stuff I do completely separately and that's on my website. It's Rob Schneider's friend.com. <laughs> and uh, it really is my website anyway, but I keep my tour dates on there. Uh, 
And um, I'm all over Instagram. Instagram, I love Instagram. So if you follow me on Facebook or it's I am Jamie Lisso on Instagram. But I have this new website I'm super proud of. And it's uh, robschneidersfriend.com. And um, all my other shit like Twitter and Facebook, it's basically me copy and pasting what I did on Instagram. But dude, I do videos. I do like a like a little, I do joke clips from Gutfeld. Then I'll do some stand-up clips where you have like weird crowd interactions or whatever. I set up a camera and I think I invite them because I know the the it's being recorded. And then, uh, so I do weird stand-up stuff and then I'll do, you know, just like stupid videos of my hotel rooms when I have uh, unique hotel rooms. So I was looking at your website the bio section just to make sure and i was hitting any things that we hadn't talked about before and i listened to one of i forget i wish i could remember the podcast because i like to give credit to people but it was so long ago i have no idea who it was but you've got that one picture on your bio and i'm looking down and typing and i'm like did that fucker just look at me and then i look down again because you got the eyeballs to keep moving and it got me like two or three times till i realized okay it's not just my mind you are actually (laughs) doing that creepy painting thing dude my web guy I think it's so important to have, I've had like great web designers, technically this guy's really good, but he has a sense of humor and he on my website. So yeah, like you're describing on the about page, there's a picture of me where like, I kind of look at you when you look away on the front of my website, it's a, it's a theater and it's like me on stage at a theater. Rob Schneider is in the crowd watching me and it's hidden. It's like a shadow of a guy. And if you, (laughs) he didn't even tell me he was doing this. He just did it. And then I was, and if you scroll over it, he's like facing the wrong way. Like he's facing you. It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. He's so good, man. This guy, this guy, Matt Summerfield, he, uh, he did some clever stuff. I I love it. I love what he did with my website. Beautiful. Everyone should go there now. That's That's a good thing. Good talking point to drive people to your, your site. Right. Well, Jamie, I want to say thank you so much. Like again, thank you to Ben for connecting us. But what I love about these conversations is, of course, we talked about comedy, and it's not my world, so I'm not going to pretend I, you know, know the ins and outs and know what it's like to be on the road because I don't. But the the parallels between your profession and my profession, and the the kratom stories and the highs and the lows. I mean, there's so much that we we got to cover today. So I want to thank you so much, not only for being generous with your time, but also being courageous and telling some of the you know the darker stuff, which is really the, what most people need to hear because we're all struggling in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. Back at you. I, I was fascinated by some of that, and also I'm embarrassed to say some of that had never occurred to me you know, about the highs and lows. And the, I mean, those are, those are extreme highs and lows that you guys go through. And that makes, it just, a, it all makes so much sense. Yeah. There's so it's crazy how many parallels there are, but uh, this is a great conversation. I'm glad we, I'm glad we hooked it up. This was fun. Mm-hmm.